I'm Naomi Klein, and I am at Navarra Media right now, having just done a wonderful in-depth interview. And this is why I love Navarra Media. And I listen regularly and watch to find out what the hell is going on in the UK. It is so critical to have independent media that we can trust, that goes deep on the issues and also lets people stay up on the day-to-day twists and turns. It's going to be especially important for your next election. So I'm incredibly grateful that Navarra Media exists and it exists because people support it. So make sure to support Navarra Media. We need left institutions and that means that we have to support them when they're doing such great work as Navarra Media is. Thanks. We've probably got something in common, which is that over the last month and a half, we've been watching the news wondering why it doesn't answer some of the most basic questions about the history of Israel and Palestine. Why did the Zionists choose the Holy Land out of all the territories on the planet to try and form a Jewish majority state? What happened after the Oslo Accords? Why were Hamas founded? And what changed about their charter since the 1980s? Well, luckily, those questions aren't going to go unanswered for long. I'm joined by Rashid Khalidi, author of The 100 Years' War on Palestine, to do a deep dive into over 100 years of history. What was Palestine before 1948? What was its status and who was there? Before 1948, for about 30 years, Palestine had been under British control in the form of uh, an occupation and a mandate um, from the League of Nations. The mandate um, was to rule a country in which the overwhelming majority of the population were Palestinian Arabs and a small but increasing proportion uh, were Jews. Um, and more and more of those people, those that population was uh, made up of immigrants who were brought in um, by uh, under 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 the terms of the mandate, uh, the British uh, occupied Palestine in 1917. Previously, it had been part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, people there had the opportunity to elect their own mayors uh, and deputies to the Ottoman Parliament. Um, it was a country that had a, a growing press. Um, it's a developing country, very poor, but um, with education spreading rapidly. The British arrived with a specific project um, that was laid out in the Balfour Declaration. Uh, and that declaration was then incorporated into the mandate for Palestine that Britain was given by the League of Nations. And that mandate was to, um, prov- to, to create a Jewish national home in Palestine. Uh, there was no mention in the mandate or in the Balfour Declaration of the Palestinians, except in an offhanded way as the non-Jewish population. They were 94% of the population of Palestine when the British occupied the country in 1917. By 1948, the Arab population uh, was about 65%. And the, thanks to immigration uh, under the mandate, um, the Jewish population was almost a third. This might sound like a silly question, but how did the ideology of Zionism emerge? And was it always centred on the Holy Land? Was there ever a consideration of other territories for the mass immigration and settlement of Jews from Europe? There are different forms of Zionism. Um, There's cultural Zionism, there's religious Zionism, um, each of which has a somewhat different nature. Political Zionism starts at the end of the 19th century. Uh, The person who's credited with really the the biggest role in, in establishing it was Theodor Herzl, who wrote a book entitled Der Judenstaat, State of the Jews or the Jewish State, and who brought together the first Zionist Congress at Basel in uh, in Switzerland in 1897. Um, before that, th- the attachment of the Jewish people to the land of Israel had been a religious attachment, essentially. Um, and there developed in the 19th century sort of cultural Zionism, not only among Jews, but also among Christians. So you had many um, evangelical Protestants, especially in the United Kingdom and in the United States, who believed that the return of the Jews to uh, uh, the Holy Land was an imperative for Christians um, due to a new reading of the, a specific reading of the Bible. Um, 
Zionism uh, uh, originally, political Zionism originally looked at multiple possible um, venues for the creation of a, of a Jewish state. The idea being that because of the persistent and, and virulent anti-Semitism that Jews experienced, especially in Eastern Europe, in the Russian Empire, and in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that it was impossible for them to live in those societies and that they therefore should uh, establish a Jewish state. And as I said, there were a variety of alternatives that were mooted in East Africa, in, in Sinai, and other places, but uh, the consensus eventually uh, centered on Palestine. And that became the objective. And that certainly was Herzl's uh, uh, original uh, objective. And by the by the by by World War One, um, that had become the, the focus of, of the Zionist movement. You mentioned the Balfour Declaration earlier. Why did the British agree to cede land in Palestine for the creation of a Jewish state? Was it some kind of feeling of responsibility towards Jewish people because of anti-Semitism, or were there different considerations at play? Um. The British had multiple considerations in supporting the Zionist project. Um, the first was essentially strategic. They saw Palestine as essential to the defense of Egypt against any threat coming from the east. And that was a perception that developed starting in 1906, long before they ever uh, developed any relationship with the Zionist movement. Um, they also wanted to control in Palestine the Mediterranean terminus of what was the shortest land route between the Mediterranean and the Gulf. Um, Britain already controlled the Suez Canal and Egypt and wanted to make sure that it could defend its position in Egypt, but also that it controlled the shortest land route um, on which they were at that stage envisaging the building of a railway. Later on, a pipeline, roads, and air, air, air bases were built along that, that stretch of, of land that Britain took over from Palestine through Jordan into Iraq. So those were the British motivations. In addition, um, there was a great deal of sympathy uh, among evangelical Protestants in, in Britain for the idea of Zionism as being a religious duty for, for Christians. Uh, and finally, there was anti-Semitism. Ironically, um, Balfour, the man associated with the Balfour Declaration, he was foreign secretary at the time in 1917, um, had been prime minister in 1905 when the British Parliament passed the Alien Exclusion Act, which was designed to keep uh, uh, Jewish refugees fleeing persecution and pogroms in the Russian Empire from entering Britain. So the same man who, uh, whose name is associated with the Cabinet Declaration of 1917, the Balfour Declaration, was also the author of probably one of the most an anti-Semitic acts in British history. Um, going right back to the expulsion of the Jews from England, I think in the 12th century. Um, so there were multiple motives for British support of Zionism. And the idea was, in the words of one British official in Jerusalem, to create a little loyal Jewish Ulster in a sea of hostile Arabs. Um, that was the idea that, that this, this, uh, uh, it was not described in the Balfour Declaration of the Mandate as a Jewish state. It was described as a Jewish national home, that this Jewish national home would serve that purpose as well as giving Britain, um, control of this area to the east of Egypt. And that, and that was the shortest, on the shortest land route between the Mediterranean and the Gulf. So you've got the Balfour Declaration. You've got the encouragement of Jewish emigration to the land of Palestine. And then something starts happening in the late 1930s, the 1940s, where you've got Jewish armed militias, Irgun, Haganah, fighting the British army. How did that happen? Because to me, that seems a bit topsy-turvy. It developed because during the mandate, the Palestinian Arabs tried all kinds of means to object to the Balfour Declaration in the terms of the mandate, which basically denied their very existence. It, there was no possibility for self-determination for the Palestinian Arabs, which the Charter, sorry, which the Covenant of the League of Nations provided. It said this was a, a provisionally independent nation. And the Palestinians said, like other provisionally independent nations under mandate, like Syria, like Lebanon, like Jordan, like Iraq, we demand our independence. And the British said, no. The League of Nations has said we're to establish a Jewish national home here and says nothing about you. You don't exist in the 
terms of the mandate, which is true. Palestinian Arabs are not mentioned in the terms of the mandate. Seven or eight of the articles of the mandate uh, are devoted to explaining how Britain is supposed to establish this Jewish national home. So the Palestinians rose up eventually against the British. And the most serious rising was in the late 1930s. It was so serious that the British lost control of much of the country. Um, and they were not able to send reserves in, parts, more troops in to, to, to bolster their, their security forces there because this was the, the period of the um, Anschluss, the, not, the Hitler's taking takeover of, of Austria. It was the period of the Sudetenland crisis and Britain had to hold all its troops in reserve. They couldn't send Indian troops because they were not sure that they would that they would suppress the Arabs. They were afraid that they had sympathy for the Arabs and that they would that they would not perform. So until the until the the crisis in Europe was over, the British were really unable to control the country. They used extremely savage means to do so. However, when they finally uh, uh, were able to get more troops there, in the end, there were over a hundred thousand British troops, the RAF uh, and and the Navy, Royal Navy, yeah. were all engaged in suppressing the Palestinians. And this caused enormous suffering to Palestinians. The British would blow up homes. The British would execute prisoners. The British put thousands of people in, in concentration camps in huge barbed wire, open, open air concentration camps. Um, they, they killed wounded, exiled, uh, or imprisoned, uh, something like 16 or 17% of the adult male population in Palestine. And this was such a serious burden for the British that they eventually shifted their policy vis-a-vis -vis Zionism at the end of the 1930s with a white paper that they issued in 1939, which basically limited their commitments to the Zionists. And the Zionist movement was outraged. And this was the beginning of terrorism against the British by these militias that you mentioned, uh, by the Irgun, by the Stern Gang, and eventually also by the Haganah, uh, which is the main, the main uh, Zionist militia. All of these, especially the, the Haganah, had been trained by the British to help them put the Palestinians down. And now they turned against the British uh, as the Zionist movement pivoted away from Britain, which they realized had imperial obligations that, um, f that led it to abandon uh, the Zionists. Um, the British cabinet decided World War II is, is about to begin. Um, we're worried about the loyalty of our subjects in India who are very pro-Palestinian. Um, the Secretary of State for India writes to the cabinet and says, this is an Indian problem now. And they were worried about the Arab countries where there was great sympathy for the Palestinians as the British were repressing them and bombing them and, and shooting uh, prisoners and so forth. Um, and they knew they would have to fight World War II in the Arab countries on the southern and eastern shores of the Mediterranean. So Britain shifts its policies uh, in 1939 and uh, the Zionist movement turns against Britain and finds new patrons in the United States and the Soviet Union. Did Britain have a plan as it withdrew? in 1947-1948 to preserve the peace between Jews and Palestinians in the land of Palestine? Or was it a chaotic withdrawal from the territory and a sense of, well, you guys get on with it, it's not our business anymore? It really was quite a chaotic withdrawal by the British when they decided to leave. Um, in the face of um, these attacks on British troops by the, by the Zionist militias, the British eventually decide to abandon Palestine in 1947 and to throw the problem into the lap of the new United Nations. Um, and so they plan to withdraw on May 15th, 1948, um, having, as I've said, handed this problem over to the UN in 1947. Um, the UN votes to partition Palestine, giving most of the country to the Jewish minority of under 35%. Palestinians were to get an Arab state, which was never allowed to come into being, incidentally, um, in less than uh, in less than half uh, of of the country in which they were an overwhelming majority, um, and they naturally uh, found this un unjust. Um, the British, uh, by this stage, were fed up with both sides. They had fought the Palestinians for three years in the thirties. They had fought the the Zionists for a couple of years after World War II. And uh, they just abandoned Palestine uh, and did so in a, in a pretty, uh, as a, I think the question is right, a pretty chaotic manner. Remember, they had decided to leave India. And so Palestine as a 
you know, land bridge or part of a land bridge between the Mediterranean and the Gulf and as a, a shield for the defense of Egypt from the east becomes less important to the, to the to imperial strategists. And so they leave, uh, leaving behind total chaos. Was the Nakba, by which I mean the mass displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, 1947 and 1948, was the Nakba inevitable or were there elements of the Zionist movement who seriously considered peaceful cohabitation, not living in a state which was necessarily a Jewish majority, but where they had protected minority status? Or was it always the case that the intention was to displace and erase the Palestinian presence in territories where they'd lived for centuries, if not millennia? Well, protected minority status was completely contradictory to the aims of Zionism. The whole point of Zionism or the whole argument of Zionism is that Jews cannot live among the Goyim because they are inveterate anti-Semites. And that was the experience, in fact, of many, many Jews over centuries, in fact, millennia in Christian Europe. Uh, the, the, you can go back to the Crusades when the Crusaders butchered Jewish communities up and down the cor their course as they went to the Holy Land. You can talk about the expulsion of the Jews from England, the expulsion of the Jews from France, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and Portugal in the, in the 12th and the 13th and the 15th centuries. And you can talk about uh, pogroms and, and, and uh, treating the entire Jewish people as if they were Christ killers, which are elements of Christian theology right up until the 20th century, in fact. So that background made uh, Zionism uh, what it was. Um, there was not just a longing for the Holy Land, which was a religious something that was there in 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 Judaism. There was also the that, which is if you want the pole. There was the push of living as a minority in a, in a in a hostile Christian Europe, and so protected minority status was not what Zionism was about. Zionism was about creating a Jewish state. That was the title of Herzl's book. And that's what it was all about: creating a Jewish majority in an Arab majority country requires increasing your numbers and decreasing the numbers of the others. And that's what Zionism is and always was about, creating a Jewish state in an Arab majority country. You cannot do that without breaking eggs. In other words, you cannot do that without expelling or squeezing into smaller and smaller parts of the country, uh, the overwhelming majority. Uh, as late as 1948, Palestinian Arabs were 65% of the population. How are you going to create a Jewish state in a country with 65% Arab majority? Uh, the answer was ethnic cleansing. Um, were there some Zionists who wished to live together with Palestinians? Yes, of course there were. Um, there was a Brit Shalom group and others uh, who hoped that some means could be found uh, of living with the Palestinians. For some of them, uh, like Zev Jabotinsky, they would live as a minority within a Jewish state. Uh, and in his writings, he argued they should be given protections but they were not to be a majority. And there's no way to turn Jews into a majority in Palestine without expelling the Arab part of the Arab majority, which is what, in fact, um, the, the various Zionist militias up until May 15, 1948, when the British withdrew, started to do, emptying Jaffa of its population of 70,000 Arabs, emptying Haifa of its population of about 70,000 Arabs, forcing them into the sea, um, and uh, emptying other parts of the country such that by the time the British withdrew, over 300,000 Palestinians had been forced to flee their homes by offensives into Arab areas, uh, some of which were allotted to the Jewish state, to the Arab state under partition, and some of which were allotted to the Jewish state under, under the United Nations partition plan. People tend to think of partition plans as being the business of drawing a line on a map and then everyone hops onto the back of a flatbed truck and leaves with all their stuff. But what we know from the partition of India, from the partition of Palestine, is that there is a great deal of what you might call non-state actor violence involved. What kind of violence was involved in the partitioning of Palestine? All of the partitions the, in, in, in the mid 20th century, which are the work of the British, incidentally, in India, in Palestine, in Cyprus, in Ireland, all of these partitions are accompanied by uh, uh, violence. In some cases, as you say, in, 
by state actors, in many cases by the British, but often by non-state actors. Uh, in the case of Israel, these were state actors. These were the militias that operated uh, under the control of the Jewish agency, which becomes the government of the state of Israel on May 15th, when Israel declares its independence and the state is established. Um, and later the army of the Israeli army. The violence includes massacres uh, up and down the length of Palestine. The violence includes forcing people to leave at gunpoint. The violence includes shooting a few people to encourage the others to leave. The violence includes spreading rumors that uh, there had been massacres and you will be massacred if you don't leave. Um, sometimes forcing people to leave in fear, even before the Israeli forces reached their villages. Um, there was massive systemic organized uh, centralized violence against Palestinians throughout the period immediately before the establishment of Israel and then for the months of the war when the Arab countries enter Palestine on May 15th, 1948. Uh, another 400,000 Palestinians are driven from their homes, 400, 450,000 uh, after May 15th, 1948, essentially via either violence or the threat of violence. About 20,000 Palestinians are killed uh, in total during the, this, this period. So I'm going to synthesize a lot of the conversations that I've had with people who I suppose would describe themselves as liberal Zionists, because when I talk to them, they'll give an account of the history that goes something like this. Yes, it's unfortunate that the Palestinians were already there, but Jewish people had to flee for their own safety. And when they did, it was the Palestinians who never accepted the existence of a state of Israel, that they didn't accept the UN's partition plan, and that every time there's been an overture of peace from Israel, it's been rejected wholesale by Palestinians out of a mix of, I don't know, clinging to grievance or embedded anti-Semitism. How much truth is there in that narrative? The first part of the narrative is actually correct. The Palestinians did not accept the creation of a Jewish state in an Arab majority country. They did not accept the amputation of part of what they understood was their country to create a Jewish state. They hadn't created the anti-Semitism that drove Jews from Europe. They hadn't closed the doors to immigration to the United States and Britain and other countries which refused to take in Jews fleeing persecution, uh, like Balfour's Alien Exclusion Act, or like the callous refusal of the United States to allow in Jewish refugees from Hitler before World War II. And they did not accept that they didn't have a right to self-determination in their own country. So no, they never accepted the idea of a Jewish state in a country which was overwhelmingly Arab. As far as Palestinians were concerned, it was their country. Um, and so the Palestinians end up being the victims of victims. And they weren't the ones who created the first group of victims in the first place. It was the, the, the virulent anti-Semitism of Christian Europe over millennia, culminating, of course, in, in the Holocaust. Um, the, the rest of the narrative is, is rubbish. Um, in other words, the Palestinians did not, it's correct, accept the idea of the creation of a Jewish state and the amputation of part of their country. In fact, the larger part of their country in the partition plan. The Palestinians owned uh, over 80% of the arable land and 94% of the total land of Palestine in 1948. 55% uh, of which that country was to be given to the, for the establishment of a Jewish state. It was a manifestly unjust partition. Even if one accepted the principle of partition, that a minority should get most of the country uh, was outrageous. But that was what the United Nations decided on, the United Nations General Assembly decided on. Um, thereafter, um, there were various attempts at a peaceful uh, resolution of this. The United Nations pushed Israel hard to accept the return of refugees, which the United Nations voted for in December of 1948. It said that refugees have the right to return and compensation. Um, and the United States and the international community tried to get Israel to return some of the territories that it had conquered that were to have belonged to the Arab state. And they got nowhere with that. So that wasn't a Palestinian rejection of a, a Israeli overture. That was an Israeli rejection of a, a, a proposal that would have uh, perhaps righted some of the wrong of, of the 1948 war. Um, there were other attempts in the, in, in subsequent years to make peace. Um, most notably when the PLO changed its charter and changed its objectives and abandoned violence in the 1980s, um, and tried to negotiate, 
uh, for a, an independent Palestinian state. I mean, this brings us to a whole other discussion of why that state did not come into being. Um, but it certainly wasn't because the Palestinians weren't willing to live in a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Um, they were never offered a fully independent, viable, contiguous Palestinian state by any Israeli leader or by the United States. That was never on offer. I mean, I was involved in some of these negotiations, and it was clear that what was on offer was, as Prime Minister Rabin said in his last speech in the Knesset, less than a state, i.e. an entity that was not sovereign and that simply enjoyed autonomy under overall Israeli sovereignty and Israeli security control. And that was the position that Israel and the United States have taken, really, in my view, uh, ever since the, the Palestinians were allowed to begin negotiating on their own behalf in the 1990s. So um, that the Palestinians turned down every offer is, is rubbish if one assumes that those offers included statehood and sovereignty and control of your own borders. They did not. Uh, neither neither uh, Rabin's offers nor later on offers that were made by Barak at Camp David, Prime Minister Barak, where, where Arafat and uh, Clinton uh, were, were, were negotiating with him, uh, nor a later offer by a later Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Ehud Olmert. None of them involved complete Palestinian sovereignty. None of them involved Palestinian control over their own borders. And if, if, if the argument is the Palestinians turned down a Palestinian state, that's false. They never were offered a sovereign, independent Palestinian state ever by anybody nor by the, uh, uh, by the uh, various Israeli prime ministers that I mentioned, and nor, in my view, by the United States. It was never really part of American thinking. American thinking was always tailored to whatever Israel considered the maximum. In my experience, the negotiations. Has Israel, since its uh, recognition as a state, its participation in the international community, been a good neighbor to the countries on its borders, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt. Um, because once more, again, a reflection of the conversations that I have with people who describe themselves as liberal Zionists, they would tell the story as being one of, you know, a small, plucky underdog, the only Jewish state on the face of the planet being besieged by Arab nations. Again, if I could ask you the question of how much truth is there in that kind of narrative? Um, that is the assiduously cultivated narrative that Israel has propagated with enormous success, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and into the 1980s. Tiny little Israel besieged by vast hordes of furious Arabs. Let me say something else about this claim of anti-Semitism, that Arab uh, Palestinian hostility to Israel is motivated by anti-Semitism. Palestinian hostility to Israel is motivated by settler colonialism, by people who come in and take another people's land and say, we are the only people entitled to that land. In fact, that statement that only the Jewish people are entitled to self-determination is part of the Israeli constitution as a result of a law that was passed in 2018. It's part of the program of the current Israeli government. It was part of the program of the Likud party in 1977, that there only be Jewish sovereignty between the sea and the Jordan River. That's the platform of the Likud party, which has dominated Israeli politics since 1977. So that, that which, is, which is one, you can describe it as settler colonialism, or you can just describe it as taking another people's land. If the people who are doing that had been Martians, there would have been resistance. If they had been from Mozambique or Portugal, there would have been resistance. The fact that they were Jews is incidental to the resistance to a process of dispossession. As any indigenous people did and would have done, the Palestinians resisted an attempt to take away their country, which is what Zionism embodies. It's not just the desire for a Jewish national home or a Jewish state. It's a desire for a Jewish state in a specific place that had an Arab majority that had to be reduced and that had to be dispossessed and whose land had to be stolen. And it was that that the Palestinians resisted, not because the people doing this were Jewish. They happened to be. What? was the significance of the six-day war in terms of shaping the experiences of Palestinians? Because we know what the Israeli narrative of the six-day war is. It's a sort of miraculous triumph of the underdog against a host of Arab nations. But what did it mean for the Palestinians in practical terms? 
I mean, one of the great myths is that Israel is always outnumbered and, and beleaguered. And, and it is true. It's surrounded by a large number of Arab countries, which have much larger populations. But the Israeli army has always been superior to all the Arab armies put together. It defeated them decisively in 1948, smashed the Egyptian army in 1956. And in 1967, it defeated three Arab armies with a surprise attack um, in six days. So that perception is entirely false. Israelis insecurity is real. But the fact is, as everybody knew, including the Israeli military, the Israeli superior was infinitely, the Israeli military was infinitely superior to the Arab militaries at every stage of every war. Um, and that's true, certainly to, to, to this day in terms of, of conventional armies. Um, the experience of the Palestinians was another Nakba on a much smaller scale after the 1967 war. In addition to conquering the Jordanian uh, uh, annexed West Bank and, and the Egyptian-administered Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights and the Sinai Peninsula, uh, which are respectively Syrian and Egyptian, the Israeli, uh, the Israeli military expelled uh, as many as a quarter of a million Palestinians from a number of villages, from refugee camps along the Jordan River, and many people in the Jerusalem area. So this was another forced expulsion of large numbers of Palestinians in the wake of another disastrous war, the end result of which was Israeli occupation that has lasted for the past 56 years uh, of the West Bank, of Arab East Jerusalem, and of the Gaza Strip. How has the nature of Palestinian resistance changed over time? Why did the PLO change its strategy in the 1980s, which I think you mentioned earlier in our interview? Yeah, I did. Um, well, the Palestinians have resisted in a variety of ways ever since the imposition of the British mandate, which uh, told them that they didn't they didn't have a right of self-determination in their own homeland. Um, they resisted with strikes. They resisted with boycotts. They resisted uh, militarily, uh, especially during the Great Revolt of 1936 to 1939. After uh, 1948, uh, when the Palestinians basically lost their country entirely, and parts of it were taken over by Jordan and Egypt, the Palestinians began again to resist primarily militarily. Um, and as, and by, oh, after nine, after the occupation of 1967, through strikes and boycotts and demonstrations and petitions and attempts in international fora to, um, to achieve Palestinian rights. So the Palestinians resisted on multiple levels, uh, diplomatic, uh, informational, uh, strikes, boycotts, demonstrations, and uh, military means. Um, in, 19, in the 1970s, something fundamental changed, which was that the Arab countries in launching the October War uh, against Israel, which was an occupation of, uh, of Egyptian Sinai and Syrian Golan Heights, limited their aims to the liberation of those territories that had been occupied in 67. And that really forced the Palestinians to limit their aims and eventually to limit their means. So previously, the Palestinian aim was the liberation of all of Palestine, i.e. somehow restoring the situation as it had been before, with the difference that the Palestinians now called for a single democratic state with Arabs and Jews living equally. Um, they shifted both in terms of means from armed struggle uh, to peaceful means, and in terms of aims from this creation of the single democratic state in all of Palestine to the idea of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. And it took many, many years for that evolution to take place from the early 1970s after the 73 war uh, up until 1988, when the Palestinians openly accepted Security Council Resolution 242, which says you accept every state in the region and you live at peace with them, accepted the idea of partition uh, along the 1967 lines, which would have provided a Palestinian state with a capital in East Jerusalem. Um, and entered eventually entered negotiations. So they shifted significantly uh, in the 1980s, both in terms of, of objective and in terms of means. How and when did Hamas emerge? Hamas emerged exactly at this juncture when the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was the recognized uh, representative of the Palestinian people and which had had diplomatic representation in over 100 countries, um, when the PLO um, shifted its objectives and said, we no longer are aiming to liberate all of Palestine. Hamas picked up that objective. And when the PLO said, we're going to renounce violence and we will try and achieve our aims by peaceful means, 
Hamas uh, appears uh, at exactly the same moment. So the Palestinians are making these shifts in the late 80s. Hamas arises in 1987 uh, and uh, preaches both armed struggle and the liberation of the entirety of Palestine. In terms of how the left talks about Hamas, it seems that there is a split between those who want to adopt the framing of Westminster and Washington. Hamas is a terrorist organization. They are an illegitimate political force in Gaza. And then there's another line of thinking which frames Hamas as a national liberation movement. Are these two things which are necessarily opposed to one another? And what is the best way to make sense of Hamas politically? I mean, you think, I think you first have to deconstruct the terrorism framing. Um, Hamas carries out acts that are violations of international humanitarian law and that may be war crimes. So does Israel. So do other countries. Um, we don't call a country that has killed 15,000 Palestinians from the air and artillery with artillery bombardment a terrorist state because what states do never is applied. That term is never applied to states, but that's what Israel has just done. You can also describe them more neutrally, the killing of all those people, as violations of international humanitarian law and as war crimes, which is what I would do. Uh, and if you're going to use the term terrorist, I think you have to use it across the board. Killing of innocent civilians is a violation of international humanitarian law, and you can call it terrorist if you want. I don't use that terminology. So does Hamas use violence against civilians? Yes, it does. Uh, are those violations, are those actions violations of international humanitarian law? Yes. Um, does Israel use infinitely vaster violence against infinitely larger numbers of Palestinians? Yes. 800 Israelis were killed. Civilians, sorry, 1,200 Israelis were killed, of whom 800 were civilians uh, on or immediately after the 6th of October. Uh, Israel has so far killed approximately 15,000 Palestinians, most of whom are civilians. The application of the term terrorist to the one and not to the other is simply skewed. Um, there are a variety of violations of international humanitarian law, in my view, on both sides, infinitely larger and vaster in scope on the Israeli side, because you also have deprivation of water, food, electricity, fuel, medicine to 2.2 million people. Those are also violations of, of the Geneva Convention and of other international humanitarian laws. Um, Habes has also taken hostages, civilian hostages. That's another violation. So uh, I would argue for that framing. Uh, I know that there are some people who say it's a liberation movement. And yes, it claims it's a lib liberation movement. And that is its goal. Incidentally, uh, over the years, Hamas has shifted the uncompromising position that one finds in their 1987 charter um, to call for uh, some form of a two-state solution. It's very unclear. It's not as explicit as the position of the PLO. But that's something that's been ignored entirely in the treatment of Hamas. It, it, it's benefited Israel to separate the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, to separate the Hamas-governed Gaza Strip from the Palestinian Authority governed West Bank to weaken the Palestinian national movement to treat Hamas as a pariah, while at the same time reinforcing its rule in Gaza, which is what the Netanyahu government and previous governments were doing for many, many years, in order to say there's no one to negotiate with. This lot are terrorists, that lot are corrupt, nobody to talk to, therefore we keep stealing land, keep annexing, keep expanding uh, uh, into the occupied West Bank. Um, that's been the Israeli strategy. And the focus on Hamas and its terrorism is, 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 part, is part of that strategy. What were the Oslo Accords and why weren't they upheld? The Oslo Accords emerged from a breakthrough that uh, the United States helped to bring about in 1991 when uh, Palestinian and Arab and Israeli delegations went to Madrid and then subsequently uh, negotiated for two years in Washington. Uh, in some cases for more than two years. The Palestinians, I was part of that delegation, Palestinian delegation, I was an advisor. And uh, we were there for from, from October of, of 1991 until the summer of 1993. Um, we found that the American-Israeli position, and it was essentially one position, was one that would have limited the Palestinians to autonomy under Israeli control with continued expansion of settlements and no control over water or entry or exit or, or anything, actually, except collecting garbage and municipal administration. And to our way of thinking, because 
settlements were continuing to expand and there was no halt to that because the occupation was to be maintained and because autonomy under Israeli control was the only thing that was offered with a promise of negotiations about the rest, but no guarantee that those negotiations would lead to an independent, sovereign, contiguous, viable Palestinian state. We, the delegation negotiating in Washington, found those terms completely unsatisfactory. Unfortunately, the PLO leadership decided it would negotiate directly with Israel and uh, essentially accepted the same terms uh, in the Oslo Accords. So the Oslo Accords created an autonomous authority which had no sovereignty, which had no jurisdiction, uh, and which was under Israeli, continued to operate under, under Israeli military occupation with the continued colonization of the West Bank and Arab East Jerusalem. Uh, pending all of this, pending final status negotiations, which never led to uh, an outcome uh, that was satisfactory to the Palestinians of independent, sovereign, contiguous, viable Palestinian state. I mean, that was the whole point from the Palestinian perspective. And that was never really on offer, nor from the Israelis, nor from the Americans. The last thing that I want to bring up is, of course, the status of Gaza. So again, Something which I hear an awful lot from people who would describe themselves as liberal Zionists is that the Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip in 2005, I believe it was, was a kind of rehearsal for Palestinian statehood. And that because of Hamas, that opportunity was squandered. Once again, how much truth is in that claim that 2005 was a rehearsal for statehood? And secondly, now with so much of Gaza having been rendered basically uninhabitable, what kind of end game are we looking at? Is it a further concentration of the population in the South? Is it something more like depopulation and ethnic cleansing? Where is this all heading? Right. Anyone who argues that uh, the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza and the removal of the settlements was... Um a rehearsal for statehood doesn't read the Israeli press and doesn't know what the Israelis are saying. Um, Char then Prime Minister Sharon's objective was to prevent the creation of a Palestinian state. In fact, his closest advisor, a man named Weissglas, said, this will put a Palestinian state into formaldehyde. That was their objective. That is not a government that intended under any circumstances to allow an independent Palestinian state, nor has any Israeli government ever said that it not only accepts Palestinian independence and self-determination, but that it accepts that this be a sovereign state with control over, say, its airspace or entry and exit. That was not on offer. And in fact, Sharon intended to create some of the problems that he created by separating Gaza from the West Bank. Movement had been free between the West Bank and Gaza previously, um, creating the checkpoints and the barriers and the uh, eventual siege that was instituted around Gaza, uh, was intended to separate the West Bank from Gaza and make a Palestinian state impossible. Um, it's interesting that another of many things that that false Israeli narrative elides is an evolution in Palestinian thinking um, in the 90s uh, during the Oslo Accords, when the Palestinians hoped and expected they would get an independent Palestinian state. Things went from bad to worse in, in the implementation of Oslo. Israel went for what they called separation, which meant the building of walls, the creation of checkpoints, obstruct, obstruction of movement, such that whereas before Oslo, you could go anywhere from the West Bank or the Gaza Strip in Israel. You could go to the Golan Heights, you could go to Ilat, you could go to Jaffa, you could go to Haifa, you could go anywhere. Anybody could go anywhere. There are a very small number of people who weren't allowed. There were no barriers to movement. Oslo created the Bantu stands within the West Bank, and, the, and the, the closure of Gaza, which then became a siege after the Israeli withdrawal of 2005. Israel's refusal in the Oslo Accords to end the occupation, not just to limit it to some areas and jam the Palestinians into area A and B and so forth, but to end the occupation. That was never, that was never intended and it never happened. Israel's refusal to stop the metastasization of the settlement process. There were 100,000 settlers when we went to Madrid, 100, 120,000, there are 750,000 now. This constant colonization, appropriation, theft of land, and the permanence of a military occupation that has gotten more and more and more severe before the first suicide bombing, 
in the 90s, before the, 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 the violence of the Second Intifada, this security system was growing tighter and tighter and tighter around the Palestinians. That bred resistance. Had Israel ever intended Palestinian statehood and sovereignty and an end to the occupation and withdrawal of the settlements, we would be in a different place than we are today. And all of these things, in fact, reinforced Hamas. Nevertheless, in the early 2000s, after the Israeli withdrawal, the United States and Israel pushed for elections. And in 2006, Hamas won the election with a little over 42% of the vote. But, you know, they won a majority in the Palestinian Legislative Council, which was set, had been set up under Oslo. Um, the interesting thing is that they then agreed to a, a coalition government with Fatah, the other large faction in the the large faction that dominated the PLO, which would be authorized to negotiate with Israel on the basis of a two-state solution. So Hamas accepted the Oslo process, entered into elections. Its election platform, maybe maybe deceptively or not, was extremely moderate. And as soon as they failed to form a government, they said, okay, we'll form a government of Fatah. And we will allow uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who had just been elected president the previous year, in 2005, to negotiate together with a coalition government on our behalf. Israel, the United States, and the European powers refused. Tony Blair himself refused and later on said, it was a mistake. Well, thank you, Lord Tony. Uh, in fact, his mistake and the mistake, so-called, of the Americans and the Israelis put us on the path to where we are today, um, which is continued occupation, continued siege, continued colonization, uh, continued attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque as more and more extreme religious uh, uh, settlers go to pray uh, in this mosque, raising a fear among Palestinians that what was done to the Ibrahimi Mosque, uh, the Tomb of the Patriarchs, in uh, in Hebron would eventually happen to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. I mean, when I was there in, in, in March, I saw group, large groups of, of settlers, religious settlers, uh, being escorted by Israeli security forces to a corner of the of the Haram al-Sharif, of the enclosure around the mosque, uh, the southeast corner, in fact, to pray, collectively pray. So collective Jewish prayer is taking place now in the mosque precincts. And the fear is, and the, the largest of these was just the day before the Hamas attack, actually. Uh, where I, as many as a thousand people prayed together. Well, you 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 build up to a point where you're going to lose the mosque. That kind of of extreme provocation against the the rulings of the rabbis who say you're not supposed to be there because we don't know where the holy of holies is. Against the prescriptions of the Israeli government for the first many decades of occupation, um, from the time Moshe Dayan was defense minister, it was agreed that this kind of thing would not be allowed. These kinds of things. Uh, intensification of occupation, intensification of siege, the holding of thousands of Palestinian security prisoners, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, created an explosive situation, which I think anybody could see uh, in the months leading up to this. The number of Palestinian casualties, people killed in the West Bank, uh, has been going up and up and up. Every attempt to launch a non-militant form of resistance, the Great March of the Return, which was people marching up to the border fence in Gaza, unarmed. Over 200 of them were killed, and hundreds of them were maimed by Israeli snipers. Snipers shooting at unarmed demonstrators. People say, why don't the Palestinians adopt nonviolent tactics? Well, the Israelis will gun them down in their hundreds when they do that, which is what happened to dem happens to demonstrations in the West Bank. They'll tear gas them, they'll beat them, and sometimes they'll shoot them. Um, attempts to do things like BDS boycott, divestment, and sanctions are described as anti-Semitic. Well, you don't want us to use violence. What are we supposed to do? You go to the International Criminal Court. Oh, that's delegitimization of Israel. You would use diplomatic means. In other words, Israel systematically has blocked off every avenue, leaving the way open for Hamas, uh, in effect, to say, you wanted to negotiate, you failed. You wanted to create a Palestinian state, they wouldn't let you. Uh, we're going to try this doesn't mean that they're right or they're wrong, but it, it is the fact that no other option was left to the Palestinians. Uh, 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 it was clear that Netanyahu and his government intended to keep the Palestinians divided and under their control while they negotiated normalization agreements all over the Arab world. So where are we now? Well, we are in a situation where Israel has rendered the northern part of the Gaza Strip, where probably close to two-thirds of the population of the Strip used to live. Um, Gaza City, Jabalia, the areas to the north have been devastated. 
Um, apparently about half of the housing stock has been destroyed or damaged. Uh, most of the universities have been destroyed. Mosques have been destroyed. Dozens of Anawa schools have been destroyed. Uh, hospitals uh, of the, of the, I, I believe two thirds of the hospitals in the Gaza Strip have been rendered inoperable. Um, there has been massive attacks on infrastructure with the claim that there are tunnels underneath. Well, if you want, it, what's being done is not just attacks on tunnels. What's being done is attacks on infrastructure. And that has been directed at emptying the northern part of the Gaza Strip. It was the intention of Israel and of the United States to expel as many as possible of the people of Gaza to Egypt. We know that that's the case because the United States government put before, put before Congress a budget request, which included forcing people out of Gaza. It's in the budget request of 20 October. We know that because the Israelis have been talking about it among themselves. Uh, and ministers have been saying, you know, the only solution is for them to go to Egypt. And we know this because the Egyptians and the Jordanians both categorically rejected the idea of Palestinians being expelled from Palestine into Egypt and Jordan. They did this for their own reasons, regime security, but they also did it because everybody in the Arab world knows that when Palestinians are expelled by Israel, they are never allowed to return. This was not a, this would not have been a temporary relocation. This would have been the permanent expulsion of yet more Palestinians from their homeland in keeping with an objective of reducing the Palestinian demography and increasing the Jewish demography. That has always been essential to Zionism. That's, Herzl said, we'll spirit them across the frontiers discreetly. That's in his diaries. This is not some anti-Semitic fantasy. This, and, and, and you read other, other Zionist leaders, they understood. They used the term transfer, this euf Orwellian euphemism for expulsion. But it's ethnic cleansing. That's, that's always been the objective because you cannot create a majority Jewish state in a majority Arab country without decreasing that Arab majority. It just, it's physically impossible. And the fear is that's what Israel is doing now in Gaza. If they can't kick them out of Gaza, they will squeeze the population into smaller and smaller areas of Gaza. When the ceasefire came into effect, Israeli soldiers shot at Palestinians attempting to return to the north of Gaza, and many were wounded. I, I don't know if any were killed. Uh, it, I, this report just came in uh, the day that we're recording this. Um, and that's in keeping with uh, apparent an apparent intention to empty northern Gaza, whether permanently or not, we don't know whether Israel will be permitted by the international community to carry out this mini ethnic cleansing, we do not know. What we do know today is that the Arab governments are resolutely opposed to complicity with Israel in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. In fact, the Jordanian foreign minister just said something like that yesterday, and King Abdullah and President Sisi have both said similar things day in, day out, ever since Blinken, uh, US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, disgracefully made the United States a party to this project to, to ethnically cleanse part of Palestine. It, it'll be a stain on the United States' reputation forever that even for a moment, the United States contemplated going along with this heinous Israeli plan. Uh, fortunately, so far, it seems to have been stymied and maybe the people of Gaza will be able to return uh, to the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Rashid Khalidi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.